Well, good morning. It is going to be a good morning. I, I'm excited about what we're going to get to do. Hey, how many guys enjoyed your Easter? Did you have a good, a good Easter weekend? Praise God. You know, we had an awesome weekend here at the church. You guys went crazy. You invited like all of your, like everybody you practically knew, I guess. Uh, um, how many guys got to go to sunrise service? You were actually at the sunrise. Was that not incredible? And, and that was done by all volunteers, our, our Boy Scout troop. Let's just praise God for them and thank them, thank them this morning. A second thing is that a lot of this was all put together in one week. Our tech ministry has been working hard, and they're learning a bunch of new stuff, stuff they didn't have before. And so, you know, some of you guys are like, wow, that's right. they're learning too. But they did a lot of great work just so we could continue to kind of move forward and continue to reach out to our neighbors and our friends. And so I also want you guys to thank them when you see them. They've just done a lot of hard work. And lastly, thank you guys. We had so we had a between all the services, um, not including Good Friday, we had about eighteen hundred people through the church. That's a lot of people. We didn't miss a beat because you guys served your tails off, and we appreciate that. That is awesome and exciting. Thank you for your service. Thank you for caring about the other people here and that have come here as our guests and other people who go to the church. Uh, we appreciate that greatly. What we did last time at Easter is we talked about this idea of where faith begins, and we discussed the conversation of you know, this idea of what is faith exactly. It's not a leap into a chasm. It's just not a blind leap into nowhere, hoping that the God of Christianity might catch us in our fall, but rather it was something different. We talked about the fact that it is standing on evidence. Faith is standing on a set of evidence so that you can simply trust God and trust what he's told us, that it's, it's the evidence that you hold and the conviction that you hold that God exists and he's sure in his promises. And we went over the resurrection last time. We saw the, the four minimal evidences that link together to show that this is a historical event that we can actually believe occurred. The only thing that would hold us back is if you're just not sure God exists and you don't think God can act in this world. And that's the only place you'd go to that you're like, hey, the bottom line is, sure, I don't understand how all the evidences work out, but I can guarantee you it wasn't God because he doesn't exist. And that's the question we're actually going to poke at this morning. Really, how, how can we begin to believe there's a resurrection? How can we really begin to believe that Jesus Christ has saved us from our sins if we can't really see that God exists? And has it been shown by science over and over and over again that's, that there is no God? I mean, you watch, you know, science shows, you watch, you know, things about science, and it kind of seems to point to the lack of an existence of God. And so what do we do with this? How, how do we as Christians deal with that? The answer is we stick our head in the sand and we don't listen. No, and that's not what we do. We're going to engage the material. We're going to look at it. And in fact, what I want to do is I want to connect us with the evidence that we have for the existence of a creator, the existence of a God who has created this world. And we're going to do that by starting in one of the most, I guess, controversial or famous chapters of the entire Bible. And that is Genesis chapter Uno, chapter 1. So grab your Bible with me. I want you guys to go to that famous, 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 famous chapter here. And if you uh, don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one from under the seat. You'll find Genesis chapter 1 on page 1. And so it's the, um, the first page that we can get to. Now, what we're going to do here, 
this morning is I need to say this because a lot of people in this room uh, hold a lot of different viewpoints about Genesis. Genesis is controversial in the church. It's controversial out of the church. It is one of the most popular conversations you can have. Is, is the earth young? Is it, is it only six literal days? Is it old? Is it eons of time? Is, it, is there God-guided evolution? Is there instantaneous creation throughout? And guess what? We're not going to cover any of that. We're going to leave that for the church to have fun conversations over right now. But what we're going to do is we are going to look at some basic observations. I believe just starting with the basic observations from Genesis 1 of what it seems to be saying and what we see in science is going to encourage you to the reality that God actually exists. You guys ready for this? God's going to get your thinking caps on. We're going to do some science and philosophy this morning. Welcome to church. All right, so this is going to be fun. So opening, uh, we're right here in Genesis chapter 1, it says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And so it goes on through the subsequent days after this. But I want to start with my first Basic observation, really simple. I don't think anybody disagrees that the Bible is saying this. It says that there was a beginning. Notice that first three words, in the beginning. And what it's literally saying is that there was a beginning of the universe. There was a beginning of creation. Before there was anything, there was who? God. And now, that's, a, that's not a controversial subject. But it is. Interestingly enough, we would assume that, um, that everybody kind of knows there's a beginning to the, to the universe. But that's a, that's a debate right now. It, it's a hotly contested debate, and it's been that way since the, the late 1800s. You see, back in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, we had moved so far away from Christianity and trying to get away from it, we came up with a concept called the steady, the steady state or the infinite universe model. Maybe you guys have seen A Beautiful Mind, and he actually references this idea. They say, oh, the universe must be infinite. Why? Well, all the math tells us so. And what happens is, during that time period of this guy's life, a man here in L.A. sits down in his observatory named Edwin Hubble, and he opens up his lenses, and he looks out into the galaxy, out into the universe, Universe, and he starts to notice that stars are not stars, they're other galaxies further away from us. And in fact, the strange thing about these galaxies, when you look at them, they've got a red shift about them. There's, there's something wrong in when you look at, when you do a, what's called a spectral analysis, this is kind of weird stuff, but you look at it, there's, a, there's this thing called the red shift. They calculated it, and they went, oh my goodness. The universe is expanding. It's moving away from itself. It, it's, it's, it's constantly inflating like a balloon. The reason this was so radical is because Einstein, the genius who he is that we all, uh, that we all understand, was sitting there and he had in his, in his works on relativity had predicted this very thing. Now he didn't know if it would happen. He was like, ah, but they finally had evidence. Evidence continues to roll in for this concept that has now, we now know as the Big Bang. And I get it. I say the word Big Bang, and some Christians go, and other Christians go, oh, you know, you got this kind of disparate group within the church. And that's okay, because what we're going to do right now is I want to speak to those of you who are scientifically minded, and you may not believe that there's a God. But I want to just point out the first observation of the Bible is that the universe has a beginning. And one of the primary observations currently in all of, in all of astronomy and cosmology is that the universe has a beginning. 
The Big Bang, just recently, they just said they found the smoking gun of inflation, a big whole uh, conversation surrounding certain particles and stuff that had occurred. And I I don't understand it all because I'm not an astrophysicist, and so I'm not going to even try to explain it. But what we do see is the general observation pulls us back that we can look and view into space to this point where we are calculating and seeing what's going on within the first few seconds of the universe's existence, even into, the, even into the milliseconds. That's pretty interesting. Because what we're discovering is in the milliseconds, what was there was not quarks, not, um, and there were some quarks and there were some other things. There were only three really elements, and that was positrons, I think it was uh, one of the other ones, I don't remember what it is, and photons. In other words, as one physicist said, in the, when the very beginning started, what you had was just light. What's interesting about this is that regardless of how much we try to get around it, it's been consistently shown that the universe has this beginning we call the Big Bang. Well, the only religious book that says that is the one that is sitting in your lap or sitting next to you. It predicts a beginning to the universe. And so famously, philosophers have sat around thinking about this And they realized something, that there's a basic law that every effect has a cause. And they said, you know what, if it has a beginning, if something has a beginning, then it has a cause. Something that starts to happen, something that begins somewhere is an effect of something else. And they said, you know what, the universe has a beginning then. We know the universe has a beginning, so the universe must, therefore, have a cause. Anybody ever heard that argument before? Throw up your hand real quick. You took a philosophy class, they threw it at you. In my philosophy class, they did that at RCC, and they're like, and who says that's God? That was their ending of the statement. We moved on. And the kids were like, yeah, it makes sense to me. And so I went to Biola where they finished the argument. Myola sat down, and then we got to that point, and I'm like, yeah, you, know, you can't say that's a God. My philosophy teacher told me that. And they said, well, hold on a second. The argument continues. In this room right now, there are only two forms of causation that you can have. There might be the physical causes, like, the, like, when we, like these things are moving because the air is blowing on it. There's physical causes around us, like the wind blowing outside or the earth's spin. These are all physical causes. But in a universe... When you define what the word universe means, do you know what it means? Everything physical. Everything that is physical, everything that is material, and all of space-time, it's all in the universe. So every physical cause is in the universe. So we can't say that a physical cause began the universe because that would, the physical cause would have to be outside of everything we know as physical. So what do we do with it? Well, there's one other cause in the room. It's called personal cause. I spin this because I want to. I don't have to. I could stop it. I could spin. I, I could do whatever. Else. I can make it go backwards. Wah! You know, Superman changed back time. You know, this whole kind of... But it's a personal cause. I make it happen. I will it not to happen. And so what we have is will is the only answer. Some kind of personal will or desire is the only kind of cause left prior to physical causes. So philosophers have concluded, when you look at the first cause that causes the universe, it must at least be an intentional, purpose-filled cause, which is always personal. Purpose and intent comes from people. 
We're the ones who derive this. So philosophers, and, and, and this, is, this is why they come up with multiverse and all this stuff in science right now, because they're trying somehow to stop it from being the first place, because they know if this is the, if this is the beginning, the true beginning, we have no other explanation but the existence of God. You say, well, that's not a very strong argument, Greg. I think it's a pretty strong argument. Strangely enough, we see an observation written over 1,400 years ago that the universe has a beginning. We dive into science and we see it. Well, let's move on then. If you need more, let's do some more evidence for ourselves. See what's going on. The author of Genesis continues. Uh, Moses is writing and he says, you know, God said, let there, God said the earth was without form and void and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit was hovering over the, dark, over the face of the waters. He said, let there be light. On the first day, he created what? Light. Test your Sunday school knowledge here. You guys ready? Here we go. On day one, there was light. Day two was what? Chirp, chirp. Yeah, not the birds nor the crickets. No, it's a day two. He says right here, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. He created the waters, the oceans, and the sky. So that's day two. Day three, he creates what? The land. So we've got day one, day two, and day three, all forming the environment, all forming the stage upon which life will explode. Because the rest of it, while it was formless and void, the rest of Genesis, the first three days, he forms it. The second three days, he fills it. He starts by filling the light with the stars and the moon. Then he fills the, air, the sky with the birds and the water with the fish and the, other, and the other creatures. And then he fills, lastly, the land with the, cre- with the land creatures. So God forms it and fills it. That's what Genesis in general is saying. We don't have to get into the specifics of what days and all that stuff. Let's just say in general, that's the layout of the book, of this chapter. So what's interesting about that is this. What it seems to be implying is that there is this reality that the environment is set up so that life can fill it up. And what we find in science is that very thing. You and I dwell on a very interesting little privileged planet. And this is my second evidence for you. The second set of evidences leads us to some very interesting conversations in in just astronomy. And what we see is this idea of the earth. And what is it? And where is it? And we're going to start not with the earth, but we're going to start with the universe. Let's go all the way back to that beginning point. As scientists have studied this, and they start looking at this, and they start doing, and mathematicians and physicists have started doing their calculations, they come to realize there are these things called cosmological constants. Anybody ever heard of these things? Um, like the gra- strong, uh, strong nuclear force, gravitational force. You know what gravity is, so you know what that is. There's a number. We can calculate the strength of gravity. We can calculate the strength of the force that keeps the nucleus in our atoms together. Call that the nuclear strong force. Then there's a nuclear weak force, and it's a different thing. And so we have all these things. There are roughly 50 of these cosmological things that need to be tightly bound. How tightly bound? It's really interesting. Frederick Hoyle, who was a physicist, started studying one of the questions of, 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 of physics, astrophysics, and he's asking this question, how is it can, can you get carbon? And this is really important to you and to me. You know why? For the ladies, it makes diamonds. You've got to have diamonds. No, I'm just kidding. It makes us. We're carbon. We're based from carbon. 
The primary element of us is a carbon atom. Now, carbon is a very powerful thing. It collects all kinds of stuff around it, but its nucleus is very precise. And it's strange because you need helium atoms to link together in a star to come together in the center of the star to produce a, a, a carbon atom. The problem was they had no calculations to know how that worked. They didn't know the, the suns and stuff and the heat of the, and the heats and all these things. It wasn't working for them. Every time it would get up to two, two of these together, I think this beryllium, it would break apart. And so what you end up with is you had to have these guys being able to cluster together with a powerful force. They discovered what that was after they calculated it. And they found out that if it, that force had changed, either strong or negative, by a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth, there would be no carbon. That's called fine-tuning. And it led Hoyle to sit back from his chair and say, somebody's been monkeying with the universe. That's one force. Let's play with gravity for a second. We all saw the movie Gravity. You glad you don't live in a gravity-less universe, right? We're glad that we're not floating around the room banging into stuff. The point is simply this. When you take gravity, imagine with me for a minute. You guys, how many guys remember old radio dials? Good stuff, right? So it zooms out there. You didn't have to punch a button and you get the thing. You literally had to dial it in. Imagine you have a radio dial that stretches the length of the universe. Yeah, yeah, try to imagine that. Have fun. But the idea is simply this. This thing stretches that far. And we've got a radio dial right there where gravity is. Let's say you move it an inch. An inch compared to the universe. That's not really going to affect anything, do you think? It increases gravity a billion times. When that happens, planets shrink. Stars have trouble forming. And you don't get life. You don't get a universe. Make it, turn it the other way, and the very opposite happens. Things get overblown, and they can't clump together. There's, it's just not strong enough. The craziness of each one of these things is that there's 50 of these. They all have to be exactly precisely in their spots. Not only do they have to be precisely in their spots, they have to be precisely in ratio with each other. This has driven science. Science is so crazy. They've had to come up with the M theory, multiverse theory, and other things, which is this idea that we are one, one, one universe out of infinite amounts of universes because the chance that we would have this to happen is impossible. According to probability, it reaches the term that they say, once you get to here, this is an impossibility. That's just a universe. Set up so that we can exist, it seems like. And you go, well, that's not a reason for God. What's the other explanation? We have somebody who has purposely started it and purposely designed it so that it can sustain us, and then we get to our planet. Because we would expect, okay, so if the universe set up for life, you'd expect life everywhere, right? We'd love to have Star Trek and Star Wars going on. Man, Jedi show up at the plan- on the planet. It'd be cool. I'm, okay, sorry. I'm, any nerds in here? Raise your hand real quick. Unite with me, please. Thank you. All right, so here we go. The idea is this. Now we start moving away from the universe question to, well, why aren't we finding, why are we finding life on everywhere? You, ever, you, ever, you guys ever hear what SETI's been trumpeting lately? They found this planet's in a habitable zone. We found a habitable planet. What they mean by that is it probably might have water. That's what they mean by that. Doesn't mean it has life, doesn't mean it can sustain life, really, but it's kind of like in the right area. And it probably might have water. 
but they're excited. The problem is the Hugh Ross takes and calculates um, roughly 122 variables that it takes for habitability of intelligent life on a planet. And it starts with this. I'll just give you a couple of them. Let's start with this beautiful thing called the earth. Home. This is home. Home is wonderful. What's interesting about home is that, first of all, it has an atmosphere. That atmosphere enables oxygen and various, various um, things to stay on the planet so we can breathe and we can live and you can have a life. It also does a very, fine, a very nice thing of filtering out bad radiation. The second thing that does that is our molten core. A molten core creates a, a gravitational field around the, around the planet so that when radiation comes flowing in, it gets collected at the top and the bottom and it allows in only positive light. Visible light. Now, there's other radiations because, you know, you get sunburn, but not so much that you're burned to a crisp. The interesting thing about the planet is that it's also rotating, which allows itself to basically have light and dark cycles. It keeps the entire earth circulating with heat and energy. It has a moon. The moon floats around it in such a manner that it causes tidal currents, keeping the salinity of the water up. It allows for this entire, this entire atmosphere to have weather so that you can have a movement of rain and a water cycle so that you can have water get onto the dry little continents that are not so dry when you look at the rest of the world, the universe. And what we have is this moon also is, is locked in position. It's moving around us because it can and it always faces the same because it's near the gravity. I point that out because we are, if that light up there was the sun, we're far enough away from the sun that we're able to turn. If we were any closer, we would lock like Mercury and always face one direction. The backside of the earth would be a frozen wasteland. The front side would be a, a blistering, hot, nasty desert, if not a gaseous planet. We're far enough away that it spins, but it's also far enough away that water doesn't evaporate into, into a Venus-like environment. But we're not like Mars so far enough away that it all freezes. We're, what's called, we're in what's called the Goldilocks zone, the habitable zone. Notice how oddly it's tilted. That 22 degrees allows for seasons. It happened by chance because something struck the planet, uh, according to the scientists, many, many years ago and caused it to turn on a 22-degree axis. If we had been straight up and down, you wouldn't have the seasons. Both hemispheres wouldn't get the right, the right kind of light, and you would have all kinds of disruptions, and if not cooking, certain sections of the planet. That's just the, that's just the earth. Let's talk about the location of the earth in the solar system. Behind us over here were, are these big things called the gaseous planets, Saturn, Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune, Right? Poor Pluto. But anyway. <laughs> and these big guys sitting behind us, beyond the asteroid belt, you know why they're so powerful? Why they're so helpful? Their gravitational force is so strong, they collect the comets and the debris that enters into our solar system so that it doesn't hit our planet. The reason why we're not freaked out all the time that an asteroid's going to kill us is because, strangely enough, there's these big planets, enough of these big planets to collect all that stuff. And then what's really strange is the location of our solar system in the universe. Or, sorry, in a galaxy. In our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, we sit between two spiral arms, about looking like that, right smack in the middle. We're not so far out on the edge of our, our galaxy, because if we were, you wouldn't get heavier elements. When I mean heavier elements, I mean anything heavier than helium. And if you know, that, if you know what helium is, it's the second element 
on the, on the table of, of elementary charts if you ever took chemistry. It's only the second element on the chart. Everything heavier has to be closer in in the, in the galaxy. But if you're too close to the center, guess what you're contesting with? It's called a black hole. And they like to tear things up. Second, it's also the primary location for star formation. And stars blow up and shoot out radiation, which kills living things. So you don't look to the center of the uh, the galaxy, you don't look at the edge of the galaxy for life, and you don't look in the arms, because in the arms is the location stars die. They blow up, they go supernova, and they shatter and scatter, sorry, they scatter radiation all over, again, killing whatever's living. We sit right in the middle of these two arms, in a clear window with very little gas, with no stars blowing up near us, where there's enough elements in a gravity well, where we can see out into the universe and observe it, tilted at 22 degrees, just far enough away from our planet, with big ones protecting us, an atmosphere, liquid water. He keeps going and going and going. He says this, the maximum possible number of planets in the universe is 10 to the 22. That's a 10 with 22 zeros after it. That's a huge number. Huge I mean, sit down and write that out right now. You, you know, 10, 22, and 22 zeros. You see how big that number is. How many planets there are in the universe? That's a lot of planets. There's got to be something out there. The chance of all these things being found on one planet is 10 to the 138th. Way beyond the probability called impossible. Why is there life is the question. Not is there life. How is it that we're here? How is it that this universe seems to be finely tuned? That, there's, that all this stuff is there and we're sitting on the planet observing all of this and amazed at all of this, wondering what is going on. The heavens declare the glory of God is what the scriptures say. And he says he had the beginning set it up. This is not just a personal cause. This is a highly intelligent cause. A highly powerful cause. That put it in place and he formed the environment and then he filled it. This is my third line of evidence from this text. He placed in there the birds and the fish and the sky. We don't have to get into evolution all that stuff. We're not going to talk about that. I just want to point out something interesting. That when we dive in and look at the things that fill this planet, you get some really, really interesting stuff. You start off with the reality of this information, this design that God seems to put into all these creatures. And that's my third line of evidence. Go ahead and throw that up there for me is that God made these creatures to fit the area. I'm going to start with this. Look behind me. You're going to see a, a strand, a big giant strand called DNA. You guys all know what DNA is, right? We just, we just broke the DNA code. We got the genetics of humans all over. This is your DNA. That thing on the left is called a chromosome. If you unravel all the chromosomes in your DNA, your DNA stretches six feet in every single cell. That's how tightly wound this stuff is. And so it's so tightly wound, when we unwind and we look at it, we get these, these, these strange amino acids, these, these nucleic acids that are right here. The T, the A, the G, and the C. You see those letters? What's interesting is we know that there are only four types that sit in the middle, and they produce this little ladder that spins around. When we examine that, we've come to realize that this is a code, I'm not talking like a Bible code thing. I'm talking about literally, it's a machine code. Bill Gates has looked and says, we don't have anything on the level of sophistication for computers. 
in four letters determine something very interesting. They determine through tri-types. There's like, you just take three of them at a time. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. When you find the start code, you, 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 can turn, you realize it turns on, and then this little thing called a transfer RNA comes up, and it goes, click, because at the top of the transfer RNA is the opposite three that clicks in, and at the bottom of it is a thing called amino acids. Anybody heard of an amino acid? It's the foundation blocks of life. These little amino acids come clicking in to the, D, to the DNA strand. Click, 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 click. And they start loading together these amino acids. And they turn into this big, long strand. This is the machine code, literally like our binary code. Some reason, these three tell the, bot, tell the cell to put these amino acids together. Those amino acids come off the, the factory line, and they get brought into this barrel machine that turns and twists them into a part called a protein. Mm, we like protein, don't we? We all the bodybuilders are like, yeah, protein. Well, protein is just a bunch of amino acids wound together, turned into a part. That part is taken in the cell and linked to other parts that become a molecular machine that then function in the cell as a, for a specific job. Now, this is not our creation. This is what we see. The strange thing is, is this. You look at that. Look up there at that DNA. You can look at it all day long. And unless we, and what we don't realize is that, what we didn't realize is the information involved. Imagine in 100,000 years, somebody picks this up. What is it? It's a CD. And they decide to examine it. They look in on it. And what they find is that it's just made of plastic and weird little crystal stuff. That's it. They walk away. I don't know where those things come from. It must have been natural causes. But then they start examining, they go, wait, that little crystal stuff, that stuff's lined up in a certain way. What's going on here? And they start discovering, wait, there's, this is, this infor- there's information on this thing. We don't know how to find the information. We don't know what the information means because they can't have a computer to plug it into that could read it. What we do is we pull out the DNA and we see it and we go, what is this thing? And we watch it work and we go, oh, it's a computer code. It's a code for your cell to build your cells. It's information. The only place information comes from is an intelligence. What's even crazier, and I'm just going to throw this in for you guys, change your location of the start on this. Say it's those three things, three, 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 three. Say we just move over two. So it's a whole new set of threes. It's coded upon code layer upon code layer. We can't even do that yet. Where you start in different locations, and it makes sense no matter where you started, even though they're running on top of each other. The, the, the DNA is a radically crazy code of information, machine code. And, and where do we get this from? Aliens. That's what Richard Dawson said. Then we go, where, where do they come from? More aliens? Are you going to run out of time soon? Where did the information come from? Well, it gets even crazier because those little proteins that come together, they start forming machines like this. Take a look. With computer animation we can enter the cell. Here, the staggering complexity of its molecular machinery is clearly seen. It's like That's that DNA thing is telling automobile factory. The factory has a large number of machines. The parts have to fit together in very specific ways to do their jobs. And if things go wrong, the cell is in big trouble. And just one cell is enormously complex, but humans, you and I, are made from trillions of cells, and those trillions of cells have to fit together in the right way and do their own job. 
Darwinism was a lot more plausible when we were thinking about globs of protoplasm than it is when we're thinking about molecular machines. Each of these biochemical machines is a masterpiece of engineering and nanotechnology. They are essential to functions as vital and diverse as vision, photosynthesis, and the production of energy in the cell. Michael Behe has studied several of these machines, including the flagellum, a remarkable rotary motor. I remember the first time I, I looked in a biochemistry textbook and I saw a drawing of something called a bacterial flagellum with all of its parts in all of its glory. It's had a propeller and a hook region and the, the drive shaft and the motor. And I looked at that and I said, that's an outboard motor. That's designed, you know, that's no chance assemblage of, of parts. Bee's reaction was not surprising, especially when the bacterial flagellar motor is animated and magnified more than 50,000 times to display the details of its construction and operation. And Howard Berg at Harvard has labeled it the most efficient machine in the universe. These machines, some of them have, are running at 100,000 RPMs and are hardwired into a signal transduction or sensory mechanism so that it's getting feedback from the environment it's got some tail proteins which act as the propeller. When the flagellum rotates, these push against the water and therefore push the bacterium forward. And the motor uses a flow of acid from outside of the cell to the inside of the cell to power the turning. The bacterial flagellum has two gears, forward and reverse, water-cooled, proton motive force, it has a stator, it has a rotor, it has a U-joint, it has a drive shaft, it has a propeller. It's not convenient that we give them these names. That's truly their function. In all, about 40 different protein parts are required to build a flagellar motor. Half of them are constructor proteins, specialized mechanisms that assemble the flagellum's individual components. Since its discovery, biologists have tried to understand how a machine of such superb design could have arisen gradually without foresight or plan through the biological pathway Darwin envisioned? The answer is they can't. They've tried and tried and tried. Stop and think for a minute. Maybe you can explain that one with chance. But the fine-tuning, the habitability of the planet, the information in DNA that produces a protein that folds into a part that makes up a machine. And those machines make up a cell. Those cells make up organs when they organize together. Those organs make up digestive and circulatory systems that need each other. Then the brain working on all this, the brain needing the oxygen and the blood flow and the digestion of food. Wait, how does the cell know it needs food? How does it know an environment exists apart from it to gain that information and food from? All of those people then gather together and they form and live in an ecosystem. And the ecosystem is supplying what is necessary for these very animals and creatures to survive and live on a planet that shouldn't have life in a universe that has the rarest chance of creating any of it. And we want to claim there's no God? 
That pushes the credulity of chance beyond itself. It comes to the place where chance is just an explanation that we have no idea and we're not willing to commit. But the Bible says there was a beginning. The Bible says we should look into this world and see very clearly environments that are suited for being filled. And finally, we land with Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. He singles out humanity to be the rare creature above them all. And here's the thing, as much as we want to claim we're like animals, we're nothing like animals. We shape our environment, we transform it. We do science and look off into the universe. We create art. We actually produce things like the Mona Lisa. And so our final evidence here is the difference with humanity. It says there should be a radical difference between us and everything else. And search and search and search. What we discover is there's a radical difference between us and everything else. We look into the universe and we discover all of this stuff. It's no wonder Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says it's in the very created things we see his power and his divine nature that you can just look at the universe and go, oh, there's a God. And it takes a lot of you know, twisting and math and stuff to, to try to prove it otherwise. Occam Razor says this, all things being equal, the simplest answer is likely right. This isn't just saying, hey, God fills in the gaps. This is literally chance can't fill the gaps. There's intelligence. There's intention. There's design. There's power. And lastly, there's us. Imagine with me for a minute these were filled with wa- this was filled with water. And we'll say that this is human beings. Human beings are filled to the brim. We have creativity, scientific knowledge. We have art. We have the ability to train the other animals on the planet. We can build spaceships and get off of our planet. Okay? This is the universe. Everywhere else we look, there's no creativity. You don't find art on Mars. You're not going to find art in the sun. It's not sitting there wondering how it got there. Neither's the dog. It's not sitting there going, how did I get here today? Hmm. It's not having, unless it's Peabody. I mean, that's a... (laughs) And so when I try to claim that this is the universe and it's created this that contains so much, that's basically saying, look, I can fill this up just with the water from the cup. And you'd say, no way. And I start doing it. You say, you're doing a magic trick. That's right. Because we know logically something less cannot create something more. But if I tell you I can fill this up with the water from in here, you're like, duh, and overflow. So if this is the human, whatever made us has to be a lot greater. Again, the only thing that explains the creativity, the intelligence, the understanding, the care, the love, the emotions human beings have and experience every single day is that there is a being greater than us that has given us these things and endowed us with these things that started the universe that was intelligent enough to set it up so that it's on a razor's edge to give life on a particular planet where it sits in the right location in order that there might be information in a genetic code to create the very things that produce cells, organs, digestive systems, animals, ecosystems, and the like. 
and human emotions, intelligence, and observation, how can there not be God? God has shown himself not just in the universe, but also in the resurrection. That God who can create a universe, you really think he can't bring the one he wants back from the dead to reveal to us that he has answered the very problem of human evil. That all the suffering and all the things have been dealt with because he was willing to take it upon himself. So you didn't work at it and you didn't make yourself right, but he gives us a gift. The God who gave us this entire universe to enjoy has given us the gift to deal with our sin. I think you have to have a lot of faith to believe he doesn't exist and not the faith that we're talking about here. The faith of the Bible says there's lots of evidence to stand on so you can trust him. Christians, be encouraged. Be kind, be humble, be encouraged. God loves us. He loves us. Would you bow your heads with me? I think God's gone a long distance to try to reveal himself to us. And maybe you're here this morning and you, this has been a, a stumbling block for you, a hurdle for you to get over. The science seems to say God doesn't exist. Yet why is it an ancient book from the 1400s B.C. explains what our science is showing us? Maybe you've taken one step closer to certainty and you need a little bit more. I encourage you to come back next week as we continue, but maybe you're there. Maybe you're going, wait a minute, God exists and this resurrection's happened. You're ready to receive the forgiveness of sins. You're ready to receive that God is giving another gift, a gift in Jesus Christ to bear our sins so we can have a relationship with the creator of the universe. And that's what he's offering. That Jesus would deal with your sin, he would deal with your stuff so that you could have a relationship with him, you could walk with him and know him, he'd enter your life and lead you from there. And maybe this morning it's time to you for you to receive that gift and trust, have faith that God can save you. If that's where you're at this morning, you'd like to take that step and receive that forgiveness and trust the work of Jesus Christ I want to give you a chance right now by putting your hand up and just saying, yes, that's me. I'm ready to give my life to Christ. I'm ready to follow after him. That's where you are right now. Just let me know by putting your hand up. I'd like to pray with you. If that's where you are today and you're ready for that, just pray this prayer with me. God in heaven, I know that I've sinned. And I ask that you'd forgive me. I realize that Jesus Christ died on the cross, bore my sin, and rose from the dead. I trust you. And I receive your promise. Would you come into my life? Would you lead me from here, I pray? In Jesus' name, amen.